Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss Holy Trinity Sunday, also known as the first Sunday after Pentecost, which this year falls on June 4th. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our deep dive on this sparkly, sparkly day, we are doing a deep dive into prisms. In part because I've always thought of Holy Trinity Sunday as a time to talk about the many ways that God reaches out to us, and prisms can be a beautiful illustration of that. The many ways that light comes out of a prism is Mm -hmm. just like the many ways that God reaches out to us. Mm Mm-hmm. And partly because I assumed it had something to do with the fact that many prisms are triangular. Sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. So what even is a prism? A prism is a transparent object with flat, polished surfaces, one angled from the other to refract light. They're often made of glass, acrylic, or fluorite. I don't know what that is, but... It's a material that's transparent and allows light to pass through it. Hmm. That (laughs) seems very helpful for making a prism. Yes, probably. (laughs) So there are certain specific types of prisms that are fairly common. A Mm -hmm. dispersive prism is the kind that breaks up white light into full-on rainbows. These might be the ones that we're most familiar with. You'll see these, you know, hanging from lamps or hanging in people's windows. So that's a dispersive prism. A reflective prism changes the direction that the light is going, but doesn't break it up. So it Mm. just bends the light to go somewhere else. A beam-splitting prism breaks up the light and sends different parts of it in different directions. So like the red light from the white light that goes into the prism will go one direction, and the blue light from the white light will go in a different direction, and we'll get to why in a minute. And then a polarizing prism breaks up the light not into full rainbows, but only so that the light that comes out of the prism contains certain specific colors and wavelengths. So that's a polarizing prism. And these prisms are applied in the real world in different ways. Mm-hmm. Like I said, a dispersive prism, that's mostly for decoration and, you know, being pretty. <laughs> there is not really a lot of practical applications for a dispersive prism aside from, like, teaching elementary school students about how light works. Wait, so are you saying that it's entirely possible, likely even, that God created things just for beauty? Well, we've all met those people, Emily, but yes, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) Some people have beautiful souls. That is totally what I meant. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. So for reflective prisms, they are frequently used in binoculars and type of camera called a single lens reflex camera. And cameras with Proper prisms lose less light than the ones that have like metallic mirrors instead. So depending on the quality of your camera, how much you're paying for it, I imagine these days, unless you're paying a lot for it, you probably have metallic mirrors. But single lens reflex cameras are very likely the kind of camera that you are used to using. If you're using a camera at all anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I took a photography course, so I 
have used single lens reflex cameras because I had one, but I've also used other types of cameras. So it's fun to like explore that if you ever get the chance to take a photography course. Oh yeah, I'm just absolutely. saying, do it. And then polarizing prisms are used in sunglasses. So I have I love those. polarized sunglasses. <laughs> Finding They're ones so that will good. fit over my regular glasses are so difficult, but they are wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I just get prescription sunglasses. The only tricky part is when you're wearing polarized sunglasses in particular, sometimes screens are harder for you to read because oh, yeah, the true. screens might be polarized, I think, in a different way or something. Yeah. Um, like exactly the opposite way that is helpful. Yep. So that's just like a thing that I have noticed. Yeah. yeah, I can't really carry an extra pair of sunglasses as well as the extra pair of glasses I feel like I have to carry because if my glasses ever mm -hmm. break and I don't have an extra pair of glasses, I will not be able to get home from wherever I am. So, mm -hmm. And then you'll find in microscopes, telescopes, glasses, and various other sight-related tools, many different types of prisms. In fact, you'll probably find several different types of prisms in just one of those things mm -hmm. because they need to bend light in different ways. And just a thing about telescopes that's a fun fact. A lot of people think the longer a telescope is, the more powerful, cooler it is. It's actually the wider it is, the more powerful or cool it is. And that has to do with the amount of light that can enter. And then the wider it is, the more it can magnify, which is part yeah. of what prisms help with and other shaped glass a lot of the time. Yeah. And you may also have heard of prism lighting, which is a way to redirect sunlight to light an indoor space in a fairly even way. And mm. this can save a lot of electricity as long as you set it up very carefully so that the sunlight doesn't actually wind up focused on one point and setting something on fire. So there's a lot of <laughs> science involved in sorting those out. Yeah. As you might imagine. Yeah. That, yeah. So this also raises the question that I know many of our dear listeners, our nerdlings, are probably asking themselves. What is the difference between a prism and a crystal? Well, Emily, some crystals are prisms, but not all prisms are crystals. Crystals are a natural phenomenon that you will find in, in the world. And many, in fact, most prisms are synthetic, made for a use or purpose, even if that use or purpose is to sell at cheapo tourist shops. So. <laughs> nice. Thank you very much, Kay. That was a very helpful piece of information. <laughs> and then there's the whole question of like, how actually do prisms work, right? We know what they are, we know different types, but how do they refract light? So visible li mm -hmm. light, also known as white light, is actually a collection of component colors. And these colors are often observed when light passes through like a triangular prism. So the light, when it comes into the prism, is separated into its component colors. And that's where we get the rainbow of Roy G. Biv. And then the separation of visible light into its different colors is what is known as dispersion. And that then for things like triangle prisms, gets dispersed even further. And so that's when it makes a bigger rainbow. And the optical density, so how dense the material is in a visual sense, is because of the atoms of material in the prism, which absorb some of the energy of the light wave. And so then form kind of like vibrating electrons that impact the dispersal. 
And so a light wave will travel through like a vacuum, an air vacuum, actually faster than it travels through a prism by like nothing noticeable to humans because we're slow. But that refraction value, that like difference in speed and stuff provides a way to express the optical density of any given prism. And so if you have a higher index of refraction values, the prism is more likely to hold on to absorbed light energy for a longer time before letting it back out into the world. And the more closely that the frequency of the light wave matches the resonant frequency of the electrons, the greater the density and the greater the index of refraction. So a light wave would be slowed down to a greater extent when passing through something with that higher refraction. So it's kind of like how you have to slow your car down more if you're going around a really tight turn? Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the other pieces of this is that a lot of what we're talking about is for visible light. There's not actually a huge variation within what we call visible light at the white light, but there is a slight variation. And so that's where we get violet light at a higher frequency, so a lower wavelength, which goes more slowly, and then red light at a lower frequency, higher wavelength, so it goes faster. So that's like when you look at the sky, it's not actually blue. It's because of the atmosphere and how it refracts the light and how it blocks different wavelengths from getting through. This, we when we talk about prisms, when we talk about light, we usually are talking about visible light, but there's a whole bunch on the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't measure, that we can't really tell what it is. There's like the whole cosmic background radiation, all of that stuff. So just as a like side note that we're talking specifically about visible light, not necessarily the whole everything everywhere. And so that's what we see when we see a prism make a rainbow. There's a slight refraction when the light goes into the prism, which is made bigger when it goes out, which creates the red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Some people say indigo, though it technically doesn't count, but it makes it a lot easier to pronounce and violet. And it's really pretty. It is indigo. really pretty. Yeah, indigo is really pretty. And it doesn't work with a square or rectangular quote-unquote prism because in those prisms the light refracts in one direction on entry and the other direction on leaving. So then it puts them back together. It might kind of move them a little bit so that it might go in in one spot and come out in the other but it'll stay in the same direction versus a triangle that will go in in one spot out in the other with the rainbow spread for you. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting to think about like how things are refracted and then re-refracted and when, and we'll get to this later, but like when water impacts it, how does water impact it? All that stuff. Sure. So what about the history of prisms? Because as Emily pointed out, crystals have a lot of the same properties as prisms and humans have been noticing those in nature for a long time. Mm-hmm. So before the year 1500 or so CE, various Greek, Arab, and Chinese scholars did various experiments with prisms, light, and refraction. We have some records of those. I'm not going to go into them in super huge detail, but we know that they were doing that work. And Eventually, what really sparks an interest in prisms in Europe is, of course, Copernicus's theory Mm -hmm. that the sun did not rotate around the earth. 
but rather the other way around. That sparked a lot of fights and also increased the interest in telescopes and stargazing Hmm. in general. And so people started paying a lot more attention to prisms. Mm-hmm. And uh, Isaac Newton in the 1600s also increased interest in microscopes and telescopes with his publication of his great work, uh, Principia. And he then also published a book called Optics that's slightly less well known. And that book included what's called the corpuscular theory of light, the idea that light moves and acts like a particle. And that theory held for a good long while until the early 1800s when the wave theory, the idea that light looks and works like a wave, overturned Newton's idea. And that was also around the time that infrared and ultraviolet light were discovered. Mm. In the mid-1800s, photography suddenly made major advancements because of various chemical advancements. And Mm -hmm. the speed of light was also measured accurately for the first time. Spectroscopy, the study of light spectra, was introduced. And this was about also the same time that Maxwell theorized that light is an electromagnetic wave, which Mm -hmm. is kind of where it's stood since. Mm -hmm. And then in the late 1800s, the scientist Hertz proved light is a electromagnetic wave. So that theory still stands. And also Eastman, for those of us who know that the Kodak camera company has also been known as the Kodak Eastman company. Mm -hmm. He was the one to invent what is now modern photographic film. Mm -hmm. And that's where, when we talk about the electromagnetic spectrum, it's because light is a part of that. Right. And in the early 1900s, Albert Mm -hmm. Einstein and Max Planck introduced the idea that light is both a wave and a particle, (gasps) but also part of the electromagnetic wave, which we'll get to more on that concept in just a minute. Mm -hmm. This is also, of course, when television was invented, and a scientist named Tomba used a very excellent telescope to discover Pluto. Yay, Pluto! Yeah, whether or not that's a planet is, of course, still slightly controversial. Dwarf planet still counts as a planet. (laughs) Absolutely. And in the mid-1900s, the electron microscope was invented and used for the first time. Also, this time held the invention of lasers, holography, fiber optics, and space exploration got to be much more of a thing. I didn't realize holographs were invented then, but I like it makes sense that they're yeah, connected when you think to about prisms. It, yeah. They scatter light in a very mm-hmm. similar way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Depending on what angle you're looking at. Yeah. The idea that I'm saying this phrase as though it's part of what is now history still kind of horrifies me. But in the late 1900s, humanity went to the moon for the first time. Robots (laughs) have gone to Mars. Lasers and fiber optics widen options for communication and information storage and entertainment. And the prisms are more important than ever. Yeah. Fancy technology, which we're not getting all the way into because it's a little bit too fancy for us, I think. And we're talking about prisms. We're not talking about... You know, how light works, technically. Technically. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Okay. So one of the things that Kay mentioned, and we've been kind of hinting around at, is whether light is a wavelength or a particle. And the answer, of course... False binary. Yes. That is a false binary. I never get to say that. I know. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) So... One of the ways that we have figured this out is through what is called the double slit experiment in physics. Mm -hmm. The double 
slit experiment was first performed by Thomas Young in 1801. And in that version of it, it demonstrated the wave behavior of visible light. Now, the basic version of the experiment, there is a coherent light source, such as a laser beam, and it lights up a plate that is pierced by two parallel slits. And the light passing through the slits is observed on a screen behind the plate. The wave nature of light causes the light waves passing through the two slits to interfere and produce bright and dark bands on the screen behind the plate, which would not be expected if light consisted of particles. And yeah, the light is always found to be absorbed at the screen at discrete points as individual particles, not waves. So the interference pattern appears via the varying density of these particle hits on the screen. Furthermore, versions of the experiment that include detectors at the slits find that each detected photon passes through one slit, as would a classical particle, and not through both slits, as would a wave. But such experiments demonstrate that particles do not form the interference pattern if one detects which slit they pass through. These results demonstrate the principle of the wave-particle duality. So what is super cool about this is it gets into like the quantum entanglement, quantum theory stuff, because it demonstrates that observation does, no matter what, impact things. And it demonstrates that light and matter can both di can display characteristics of both classically defined waves and particles. And so when this experiment was first demonstrated, it was thought that light consisted of either waves or particles. And there was some, as Kay mentioned, debate about which was which. But with the beginning of modern physics in the 1900s, it was realized that light could in fact show behavior characteristics of both waves and particles. And so in 1927, Davison and Germer, two scientists, demonstrated that electrons show the same behavior, which was later then extended to atoms and molecules. So it has in many ways kind of revolutionized how we think about physics, and particularly like in a quantum physics level, when you hear about quantum mechanics, quantum physics, quantum theory, all of that stuff is kind of related in there, but gives just like this whole other space that has been opened up both technologically in terms of how computers and technology work, and also just in terms of like what we understand about the world and how we think about it. And we're still figuring that stuff out because it takes a lot to yeah. kind of get down into the nitty gritty of different experiments like the double slit experiment. Yeah. But the double slit experiment, if you want to be super nerdy, that is definitely like a key way to like exercise your nerddom for good or for whatever purpose you want. But like that's one of the key ones. Schrodinger's cat and the double slit experiment are both like pretty big. Sure, but don't try to do the Schrodinger's cat experiment. Don't do it. That's no. not in no. fact something that anyone should ever yeah. Right. Potential murder bad. Right. But Reading about it bad, but... and yes. learning about it is good. Yes. 
because it's a thought experiment. It was never actually done in the first place, which I do remember the episode of Stargate SG-1 where Sam Carter's character had to explain that to an alien (laughs) because the cat on the base was named Schrodinger and then she had to explain why it was funny. And then he was horrified that these people would do this horrific animal abuse experiment and she had to explain, no, no, it was an idea someone had. Mm-hmm. It's true. But reading about it is fun. Yes. And there's a kid's book for sure for the Schrodinger's cat. I don't remember if there's one for the double slit experiment. They talk about the cat being asleep, not dead, but... There are, like, kids' books on quantum science now. It's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you can probably find YouTube videos Mm -hmm. showing you how Mm -hmm. to do the double split experiment, too. I'm sure you can. Okay, so what about prisms in the Bible? Are there any prisms in the Bible, Emily? Yes. You know, rainbows come from prisms. So, in Genesis 9, when... God says, oh, shoot, I maybe should not have wiped out all of humanity save one family and Mm. all of the animals on the earth save two of every-ish kind. Then God, what's written is God realizes what God has done and is like, "Mm, I shouldn't do that anymore and hangs up God's bow in the sky. And that is where we get rainbow. And so that is that water can function like a prism depending on how it is. And so that's why when it rains and there's sunlight somewhere, that's how you get rainbows. The sunlight goes into the raindrops and the rain clouds and all of that stuff and then is refracted into one, sometimes two, occasionally though very rarely three rainbows. Yeah. Also, I was having a little trouble coming up with options for this, and I tried Googling Prism and Bible, and apparently there are a ton of folks out there who are very big on Jesus being the prism through which we see God. And some of those folks sound perfectly normal and reasonable, and some of those folks sound just a tad unhinged (laughs) in terms of what they're talking about on their websites. It's not a terrible metaphor. Like, I think I've spoken several times about Jesus being a lens through which we understand God, and that's not all that different from a prism, really. But some of the websites you get when you search prism and Bible are just a little wackier than I was expecting that particular afternoon. (laughs) It is possible to take a metaphor too far, but this is not a terrible (laughs) metaphor on its own. That's fair. I was thinking about prisms, and though it is not technically biblical, and thinking about the Trinity because it's Holy Trinity Sunday, but thinking about them both in terms of like a triangle, which is a common symbol for the Trinity in Christianity, but also thinking about like when... The, the aspect of God, right? That we understand God as both three and one. And so thinking about light and visible light being one and also through prisms becoming many. Um, and so those were kind of the, the spaces that I was thinking about Trinity as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the one actual biblical example that sort of works that I could come up with was <laughs> the idea that we are the light of the world from Matthew chapter 5. Mm. And so we can also be a prism through which other people can see God. Mm-hmm. But again, it is possible to take a metaphor too far. Yeah. And then something I learned through doing research for this episode is that there is in fact more than one kind of prism because it turns out that there are these clay columns that are hexagonal in shape, and they are called prisms. 
And the idea is that these columns with six sides have writing on all of the sides and they are a way to keep records from the ancient world. And so there is apparently a clay prism from ancient Assyria that includes several records from the era of Sennacherib and includes a mention of his imprisoning Hezekiah the Judahite, which is to say King Hezekiah of Israel, which is totally the correct king who was imprisoned by Assyria when they invaded. Not to be confused with imprisoning, where you put them in an actual prism. That sounds much more like, well, not exactly like the mist computer game, because that's actually a book. But Mm. since the book has a little window that you can see into, that sort of seems like a prism. Yeah, it it kind of happens in the Dimension 20s Fantasy High campaign, the first season. So Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, of course, pop culture. Prisms are pretty popular. I think every generation, while in childhood, has a rainbow phase. <laughs> I think it's just like required. Like oh, at some Lisa point Frank. in childhood, yes, Lisa Frank is a great example <laughs> of that. My favorite five-year-old drew me a rainbow all of her own accord the other day. Aww. So it's it's very exciting. But perhaps the most famous prism of all is from Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, which shows visible light represented by white light coming into a triangle and then being dispersed into a rainbow. That's not actually like what it a prism like how it looks when because as you mentioned. Yeah. Well, you can't usually see it, but also like that's it's dispersed upon entering and then again even further upon exiting not just like at a random point in the middle so that's where i think a lot of people like can sometimes get confused about like what even is a prism what does it do all of that stuff because that is the iconic depiction of it and it's not scientifically accurate but it is delightful also expecting a rock band from the 70s to be scientifically accurate seems like a lot Okay, but have you heard of Queen? There's literally an astrophysicist and a dentist in Queen. So, uh-huh. Yes. Although I wasn't expecting... Anyway. Yes, I, dentists are totally scientists. That is valid. I was also totally in a meeting a couple of weeks ago with an older woman in my community who I don't know that well. And for a minute there, I thought she was wearing a rainbow t-shirt. And then I realized, oh, no, that's a Dark Side of the Moon t-shirt. Which, like, still cool. <laughs> different kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But that was fine. And I personally, when I think of prisms, one of the first things that comes to mind because I grew up in the 90s was a book called Don't Look Behind You by Lois Duncan. Lois Duncan was well known in the 90s for writing a whole bunch of young adult novels starring teenage girls that were like suspense novels. This one in particular, a young woman and her family go into witness protection. And prisms come into the story because she is actually very fond of prisms. She has a whole collection at the beginning of the story of prisms, and she has to leave them behind when they go into witness protection. And prism comes into the story again toward the end of the book. Mm. But it's sort of part of her personality that she has to pretend it doesn't exist for a while while they're in witness protection. But Lois Duncan was sort of the only person doing young adult suspense novels at that time. And so these stuck in my head. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And a bummer. I would hate to have to leave behind something that I love dearly for witness protection. I mean, I guess, you know, worth it if you don't die. 
but that was kind of the idea yes and she eventually gets more comfortable with the idea as time goes on but okay it's a struggle mm-hmm. one of the other things that frequently can function like a prism is stained glass windows so one of the congregations that i serve like depending on the season and the time and all of that Sometimes rainbows show up on like the back of my alb or the back of my chasuble when I'm preaching, which is kind of funny, but it's because stained glass windows frequently have angled parts to them. And so when the, as the light is passing through, it functions as a prism and refracts and disperses the light. Yeah. Also, there are like reflections and like rainbows as clues and indicators of like divine presence and favor that come up in shows and tvs tv shows and movies a fair amount like touched by an angel i think of that and it Hmm. might just be my memory that makes it feel like that but also there's like prismatic ghostish thing have any things that happen in the movie ghost which i just watched because we covered it for horror nerds at church and it was my first time ever watching it and i was like oh this is what everybody's talking about with the pottery scene. And yeah, it was great. Yeah. I do love that movie. Mm -hmm. Also, I feel like we should point out that the U.S. military and the FBI apparently have a surveillance program that is called PRISM. That's the acronym for it. This is not what we are talking about. (laughs) But if you search for PRISMs on Google, boy, howdy, does it show up in space. So, yeah, we're, you know, not big on military FBI surveillance. Also, so, if we tried you know. to do a deep dive into one, I'm pretty sure we'd wind up getting investigated. So It's true. It's true. Yeah. I'd rather just stay clear of the Department of Defense. Yeah. Also, the Wizard of Oz is a great rainbow prism thing. <laughs> We're getting a bit loopy, folks. But the Wizard of Oz has a rainbow in it, which implies, as we know, that there are prisms particularly probably from rain. Also, there are things called water prisms. And because water has a different density than air does, it slows down visible light from the sun or from another source and bends it into rainbows, as we've already described. But it can act like glowing crystals or that sort of a thing. Also, they can reflect and refract things around them like mirrors the best way to probably get an understanding of how prisms and like rectangular situations change where the light is moving and the angle and direction of the light is by using water because you can see through water to see how an image is distorted as it goes through water because there is a lot more density there so that's just like a kind of cool thing if you're interested in playing with light more or kind of exploring it's a super kid-friendly activity right to just like look through water in different containers or yeah look yeah all sorts of different ways to explore And come to think of it, actually, one of the major breakthroughs in making video games more realistic in the last several years has been that they have finally figured out how to do that in Mm. video games and how to show how water distorts what you see on the other side. Interesting. And for that matter, making mirrors in general. But that has been an ongoing struggle for a lot of of video game makers. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So... Prisms. 
Yay. Rainbows. Yay. Even more yay. Absolutely. So our first reading for this episode is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4a. God creates the cosmos and declares that everything that God has created is good. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of a merism. And throughout God's creating things from light and darkness to air and water, all of these things, there are so many different things that we could look at and on the surface say, ah, that's a binary. And you know <laughs> what? It is. It's a false binary because there is a Hebrew poetry technique that names two things that are thought to be opposites or on different ends of the spectrum. And the intention is to encompass those two things and everything in between. So the water and the land, but also the shore and the marshes, all of those things. And so that also includes gender, right? When I read part of Genesis 1, I read it as God created them male and female between and beyond, because that is the sense that Amerism is trying to give. And you can check out more about this in our Easter Vigil episode from this year with Rabbi Becky, where he talked about it. Absolutely. So would you say, Emily, that Amerism is a prism with words? Ooh, yeah, okay. I like that. Cool. That's brilliant. Merism. That's totally why we decided to talk about prisms this episode. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So as we jump into the verses, in verse two, we read, The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. So remember, kids, let's keep our memes categorized properly, fellow kids. The abyss is what you fling yourself into, and the void is what you scream into. So presumably, at this point, God was the only one screaming into this void, right? Because God is the only one there. And so my questions are, what was God screaming? And since all of God's creation in this passage is done with words. Does that mean that the void was created by God screaming in the first place? Hmm. Like, is it not only that you scream into the void, but the void was created by God screaming? Interesting. Huh. So that sounded fun. Yeah, I'll buy it. Yeah. And then in verse six, we read, and God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Specifically, we are talking about separating the sea from the sky, because in the creation story, the Bible talks about the sky being made of water, which explains Mm -hmm. why it's blue, according to ancient Israel, which, you know, several thousand years ago kind of makes sense. And not the most inaccurate thing, because there's a lot of water in the atmosphere. Absolutely, which is part of what refracts the light into being blue in the first place. Mm-hmm. Speaking of prisms. And so I have always mentally pictured this as a giant bubble kind of rising up out of the sea and taking some of the water with it up to form the sky, particularly when I was a little kid and I was told the story. But I also always thought that there was something else that it reminded me of, and I could not figure out what it was for the life of me until I finally figured it out this past week. If that is what it looked like, it must have looked like God was shuffling the water and then doing a bridge finish to the shuffle, like you do with a deck (laughs) of cards after you riffle shuffle them. And you arc them upwards to finish the shuffle. I do bridges all the time when I shuffle. I love the concept of riffle shuffle. I have never heard that before. 
Oh, that's what you call the take the deck, split yeah. it in half, and riffle the two halves into each other. Yeah, riffle though, not a word I've ever heard, but I do bridge shuffling all the time, so I love that. Yeah, my grandfather had to shuffle cards for an hour a day for his arthritis throughout my childhood, so I saw mm. him do that a lot. I never did quite get the hang yeah. of the bridge myself, but I'm fairly good at shuffling cards. The first time I shuffled cards when I was in Slovakia with my host family, they thought that I had worked at a casino. <laughs> something because I shuffled them like a bridge mm. and they were like what and that was of course very scandalous and then when my mom came to visit she shuffled cards the same way and they were like because I by then I had explained that I had not but yes yeah it was funny I don't think of how the water gets up there but I have thought of a bubble like you see on a lot of sci-fi shows with like how the moon becomes habitable, right? Where you get like a big plastic bubble that goes over the like towns and like the earth. And then the water just like is on top of the bubble. That's, yeah. that's how I kind of that always visualized it. It doesn't really make sense, but you know. Well, no, not really. But in terms of kid logic, it, it does. Yeah. 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 And then in verse 10, we read, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, God called seas. And God saw that it was good, but not everything that is called a sea is a sea. Just ask the Dead Sea or the Salt mm. Sea, also known as the Salt Sea. But yeah, I always think it's funny when there's like, this is called a sea, but not a sea. This is not called a sea, but is a sea. Yeah, the, the, the things we call things that are not quite accurate. It's almost like we also do that with people. Hmm. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. And then... In verses 29 and 30, God says, See, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And that begs the question, like, what even is alive? We talked about this a little bit in last <laughs> week's fire episode but like the breath of life fire has yeah. the breath of life like to snuff out fire ask any acolyte you remove the oxygen source for it and so like snuffing out or the you breath just of blow on it which i suppose is the breath no, of death that too yeah the breath of death <laughs> i love it but yeah restricting access to oxygen kills flames so I just was thinking about that and thinking about the different ways that particularly many native cultures think about what is alive as well, that it is not just the things that that like Western white science has deemed alive, but that like rocks can have a breath of life, can have kind of that spark of life as well. But yeah, yeah, mostly I like that fire is alive. I'm alive. slightly creeped out by the concept of fire being alive, but it is an interesting idea. Sure, that's fair. And then our second reading for this episode is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. At the end of his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul invites them to live peacefully together and gives them a Trinitarian blessing that may be familiar to many. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of endings as beginnings and beginnings as endings, or as some songs might say, every new beginning is some other beginning's end. Kind of like the cycles of life, but that there is this like 
blessing that Paul gives to end the letter, but frequently, particularly in our denomination, in Lutheran worship, that precise blessing as a greeting to begin worship. Yeah. Yeah. And then in verse 11, we read, Finally, siblings, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And I was struck by the, like, put things in order. Because when we were prepping <laughs> this, I was, like, binging the, the latest season of Queer Eye. And for real, though, like, Bobby has talked about it more explicitly in this season than I think we get in past seasons. But bringing order to a space, to a room, also gives mm-hmm. peace and order to mind and to our minds. And that's, like, particularly, I think, for neurodivergent people, but also just, like, broadly speaking, I think, like, having visual chaos is, can just make everything feel more chaotic. And so then when it's like, okay, we're ordering things, we're putting things in places, and Matt, one of my roommates, talks about clean lines, nothing on the floor, pick everything up on the floor and make clean lines. So you get like really tall things, but it just like opens the space for our brains to function. Sure. Yeah. I've read that verse and I was thinking, Paul, congratulations. This is actually a reasonable to-do list. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Clean your room, read scripture and be agreeable and peaceful. Like that is a list of things that normal human beings can actually achieve. In fact, some abnormal human beings can even achieve this. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not normal for Paul, because Paul usually gives completely Mm -hmm. impossible to-do lists. And it very much reminds me of the time that Jesus, instead of being cryptic and weird in how he answered the disciples, just said, no, don't set people on fire. Like, sometimes the answer is that easy. Don't set people on fire. Sometimes clarity is a good thing. And then in verse 12, we read, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And the book version of Princess Bride introduced the idea of the historical list of the five greatest kisses. But I don't know if there's an equivalent list of the five holiest kisses somewhere. Hmm. Like, I don't know where we'd keep that list, but it does sound interesting. And is this the kind of trivia that we're all going to get like obsessed with (laughs) in heaven? Because you know that we're going to get obsessed with some kind of trivia in heaven. Like, that is absolutely who Mm -hmm. we are as people. Mm -hmm. Okay, but what are the five greatest kisses? Oh, the whole point of Princess Bride is that it mentions stuff and then doesn't explain it. So, like, the five greatest kisses are mentioned in the context of this kiss happens and the narrator says, and, you know, there's a list of the five greatest kisses in the history of the world, the most passionate, the most pure, and this one blew them all away. And... So, no, they are not actually explained. Well, that's disappointing and probably unsurprising. But that also sounds like the kind of trivia we could get into in heaven. So It's true. It does give me more understanding of why Princess Bride just kind of grates at me and is not something that I enjoy. So I'm glad other people do. Are you talking about the movie or the book? The movie. Because they are quite different. The sense Mm. of humor in the book makes the movie make a lot more sense. Oh, maybe someday I will read it. Sure. Not today, though. I wasn't expecting you to, no. Well, yeah. And then in verse 13, look at us go. We covered every verse in this passage. <laughs> One and of them we covered twice. Yep. Because there well, are that's three. Uh-huh. In verse 13, we read the very famous blessing that we referenced. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you 
all. Be with all of you. Mm-hmm. Are you not going to say, and also with you? It's a little disappointing, Kay. Are you a Lutheran or Well, not? I can't see you, so I didn't know you were doing that, but also you said it wrong the first time, so. <laughs> it's true, but only because I was quoting because the Because that's how we wrong. say it. We say it, be with you all. Yeah, that's because our hymnal quotes it wrong, but yeah. Mm. <laughs> also because it's translated from the Greek, and so there's just like Probably. flexibility there. But anyway, this is a standard invocation that we use for worship. But not going to lie, the camp invocations are way cooler. So invocations are like kind of naming the triune God into the space. And there's one that we did with like the linking of arms so that there are three people and all of their arms like interconnect. And when you say like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's one that's like a fire one where that's where you get the like throw stuff on the fire to make different sparks happen or the pyramid one where like you get in like a cheerleading pyramid shape just don't do that one right next to the fire because that's dangerous <laughs> so does that mean that someone in the pyramid is a cornerstone because we are the living stones of god <laughs> two actually but presumably jesus yes. is the cornerstone right so like one of them does say well, yes it's a pyramid you need more than two yeah <laughs> And then our gospel reading for this episode is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Saying farewell to the disciples before ascending to heaven, Jesus gives them the great commission to go to all nations and baptize in the name of the Trinity. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of commissioning or sending. And we actually, in my first call, I we closed the congregation a year after I got there and Hmm. This was the gospel reading at the closing worship service. And, um, oh, wonderful. Yeah. And part of what I loved and part of what I like preached on and to which the bishop replied with, amen, pastor, hmm. was that this is, right, like this is supposed to be the Great Commission, the sending of the disciples, the purpose of the church. And Jesus does not actually send anybody to go build a church and worship Jesus. Jesus says, go baptize, right? Like that, that it is the, it is this, yeah, baptize and make disciples. It is a sending out. It is not build a church and worship me and everything will be fine because that's not real. Yeah. And discipling, you know, takes a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So as we jump into the verses, in verse 16, we read, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Okay, so I have not been to the Holy Land myself, as I think I've mentioned, but I have seen pictures, and I think the mountain here is probably less like, you know, the Rockies, Mm -hmm. and more like a tall hill with walkable paths up it. (laughs) Like, they have things that they call mountains there, but if you've been to the Rockies, they are not going to look like mountains to you. (laughs) And Yeah, it's kind of like the Appalachian Mountains, that they're older. Yeah, they're very pretty, they're kind of short, but they're a little more traversable. And the disciples, the idea of the disciples showing up to this place in sandals and realize that Jesus is demanding that they do serious rock climbing after months and months of letting them be wrong about all sorts of things all the time is kind of hilarious. And so (laughs) the idea of them showing up and discovering, wow, when he said mountain, he wasn't kidding. That is just always going to amuse me. But it it probably wasn't. It, It was probably a very tall hill. So that's fair. Yeah. And then once they get there, we read that when they saw Jesus, they worshiped Jesus. 
but some doubted. And I think it's better to say, and some doubted, because doubt is in fact good and part of faith. For example, in World War Z, the movie, Israel was the ones who best responded to the zombie apocalypse. They were saved because they have a practice, which I think is a Jewish practice, of if everyone is in agreement, someone has to disagree. Someone has to doubt. And so 10 out of 10 people were like, ah, this whole thing is like not a big deal that like when they were talking about the very beginnings of the potential zombie apocalypse and then somebody had to say no it is a big deal no this is bad and then come up with an explanation and the explanation they came up with was zombies and it turned out they were right so doubt is a good thing yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. and then in verse 19 we read jesus saying go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and i it's colonization like make every nation follow jesus it might seem to not be bad because jesus has some really good ideas but actually not not yeah colonization is bad well yes but I never understood this as forcing people to enter it's, the faith. Yeah. I, I know that a lot of people have understood it that way, but like that was not how it was taught to me. Because baptism, yeah. if it's happening to an adult, should always be their choice. It should always be like at their volition. Yeah. And I don't think I ever interpreted it as forcing someone to be baptized. But there is just like a sense of it that's like, if that is, it has absolutely been used that way in, yeah, in a bad way. Yeah. Yes. But also, like, if that is the purpose of faith, then what about the, like, go care for people? Like, there are so many other things that Jesus could have said. Care for people, provide yeah. for the poor. and Well, that's kind of what the disciples do, though, right? Yes. Like, yes. my understanding was that depending on how you understand how this is phrased, the make disciples of all nations, it's not that all of the people of all the nations need to be disciples. It's that if we get a couple of people from each of the nations, then we're better spread out and we can better help more people. And we can speak more languages and therefore help more people, that kind of thing. So like in the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that make up most nations, there are probably a couple of them that would be interested in following Jesus. And if we can find those people, yeah. That makes more sense. I'm more on board with this. Less hesitant, less scared of the implications. And then the second half of verse 20, we read, Jesus says, And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. But Jesus is only with us to the end of one age, not like four or five ages. If you've been playing (laughs) the new version of Mist in VR, Jesus is busier than that. He does not have time to come play VR with you right now. That's what, you know, eternity is for, presumably. So just the one age. (laughs) Noted. Noted. Thank you for providing that clarification, Kay. I Much appreciated. For what it's worth, I am not actually playing Mist in VR because I did like the game, but I don't need that in my life. But I did get out my copy of Riven again, so we'll see how long Hmm. that one takes me. All right. I have no idea what any of that means, and I'm okay with that. Oh, if you like puzzle games, Mist would be right up your alley. It's very fun and very, like, quiet and and gentle and... uh, 
there's like no combat or anything, but you're wandering around and figuring out how this world works. Okay. And then you travel through books, literally. Ooh. Huh. Now I'm intrigued. Okay. I might have to check it out. And now for our refractiest segment, (laughs) our most dispersed segment, let's make a Muppets musical. (laughs) So, okay. Who are you casting for this episode? Well, you know, all of that talk about the abyss and the void with the first reading and, you know, what would God's screams have sounded like? And I think we all know that Animal has the answer to that and (laughs) Animal and possibly his drum set. And so (laughs) the image of Animal creating the void by playing the drums to start off creation, that sounds very appropriate to me. I think that's great. And I'm sure there have to be like other creation myths from other cultures that actually sound remarkably like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's true. I was thinking about it and I was thinking about like, I think we've cast all of the Trinity, right? We've got some of them more than once, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have like Sweetums as. As God. Sweetums was God. That was Pace. Thank you, Pace, friend of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And then we had. At varying points, like Big Bird was Jesus. And Kermit was definitely Jesus once or twice. Oh, yeah. And then who is the Holy Spirit? I think we have cast the Holy Spirit before. I just don't remember who it was. Like, that might have been like Elle's episode when we were talking about the Holy Spirit. And Mm. yeah. Yeah. I do think that Snuffleupagus would be a good Holy Spirit because there's the sense of like imaginary friend, real, not real. Who knows? about Snuffleupagus and then the reality of like yes Snuffleupagus real absolutely also I kind of like the idea of the Holy Spirit both having a trunk and being really fuzzy both of those things seem appropriate I'm not really sure why Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree I agree so I think for Holy Trinity Sunday I would cast Snuffleupagus as the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity but I wonder if like in order to cast the Trinity as a whole we take like the Muppets, Sesame Street, and Fraggle Rock or something. And just like have those three shows be the Trinity. I think that gives us an excuse to rewatch Fraggle Rock. I'm on board with that. I'm not sure where that's going, but sure. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the second Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It's cheaper than a telescope or basically anything with a prism or refracting lens. Absolutely. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Pox Vobiscum.